one. Oh, swung on. There it goes. Deep left center. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone, but caught at the wall. Caught by, remember that guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I'm James, and boy, I thought that was gone. It was almost gone, but thankfully, here I am returning after my little stint on the IL. Fanatic, we've made amends. I am back. Your other co-host, Diaz, and we are going to have a very special guest again. He also thought that ball was out. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, this hits a little too close for home, seeing as how I just got to see this happen last night again. So No, that's that's the one from last night, to be fair. That's not yeah. the Stantonian one from last year with the same player to virtually the because exact like, same happened. location in a ballpark. It, it happens so often because if, the way the ball sounds hitting off of his bat and then also the angles at Yankee Stadium make it look like it's flying off into the night. And so I'm in bed last night. Caitlin is laying next to me asleep, and I think Stanton has just tied the game. And I'm like, ah. But did you wake her up? <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, I did not wake. Then her we up. saved it at least. It, w- it would be a very difficult conversation if you yell. Caitlin says, "What is it?" I'm sorry. I thought my team did something well, but actually, you know, I think she's used to that up. at this point anyway, so it wouldn't have mattered. But yeah. I realized I haven't actually introduced myself. I am the very special guest, Xavier, and. God, Vlad Guerrero hitting three home runs in a game where he also had his hand gushed open by being stepped on is absolutely crazy, and I cannot wait to not be playing the Blue Jays. If the Orioles don't take Andrew Jones Jr. with the first overall pick in the upcoming draft, I've decided that the the franchise is truly beyond saving. Nothing has made it more clear to me that at this point, if there is someone coming up who has a major leaguer's name and junior, just fucking draft them. Don't ask any other questions. Hall of Famers for, for Andrew. Uh, did Andrew make it? I know Vlad did. I do, no, Andrew, Andrew did didn't. not make it first ballot. Andrew has not made it yet. He better. He should. By the time Andrew Jones Jr. has made it, Andrew Jones Sr. needs to be in the Hall. Future Oriole, Andrew Jones Jr. Yes, indeed. Andrew Jones Jr., he'll be making memories for me someday in Camden Yards, and it'll still be a 100 lost season. But in the meantime, focus on some other things. Who's making memories for you guys right now? You know... I believe we have talked about this, uh, at least uh, on the official Twitter account, but I did want to talk about Roki Sasaki, the 20-year-old Japanese pitcher who did a 19-strikeout perfect game, the first perfect game in over 25 years in the Nippon League. And I I watched the compilation of all the strikeouts. It was incredible. The one thing I did see was that they figured out what his game score would have been, you know, the yeah. uh, MLB game score. It was 106, which is one higher than the greatest game ever pitched in MLB history. But the other thing that I, the, the thing that I kind of wanted to focus on, not just Roki Sasaki, you know, the 20-year-old pitching phenom who looks like he can come over to the U.S., you know, in five years and be a star. I wanted to give a shout-out to... Ko Matsukawa, his catcher. You would think 20-year-old pitcher probably leaned on a veteran catcher to help him stay calm through this game. No, Ko Matsukawa is 18 years old. Yes. Our, our little baby battery. Yes. An 18-year-old and a 20-year-old combining for the first perfect game in over 25 years in the Nippon League, which I think is awesome. And we might see Roki Sasaki in the future. But 
I, I just want to make sure that Ko Matsukawa is remembered as well, even if this is the highlight of his career. Well, and I mean, at least they got to complete the entire perfect game. Uh, we were recording this, <laughs> what, two days after Clayton Kershaw was yanked was in yesterday. the seventh? Yesterday. yesterday. It was all, it feels like it's been eternity because it's been one of the few things I can possibly occupy my mind with. I get it. Seven perfect thing. innings is tough. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I don't get it. If he was even at 90 pitches, let's say, entering the seventh, I would understand pulling him. But he's at 80. This is like as efficient a perfect game as you could possibly pitch. And he had 13 Ks at that point. So the 19 strikeout perfect game that we just saw could have possibly been equalized by Clayton Kershaw. And he didn't even get that opportunity. It is a travesty. Once again, going back to the Stanton thing, Dave Roberts pulling someone who's perfect through seven innings. If we had a nickel for it every time it happened, sure, we'd only have two nickels. But it's still weird that that's happened two times. And it's the only two times in baseball history that a player has been pulled at seven perfect innings out of some 26,000 baseball games that have ever been played. I hate you, the Dodgers. But also, real quick, one thing that I can't believe I forgot to bring up. I wanted to give the catcher his due, but I shouldn't move past the fact that Roki Sasaki... His house was swept away by that giant tsunami and earthquake in 2011 in Japan, killing his father and his grandparents, and he had to live in a nursing home for two years. Then came back from all of that to throw 101 in high school, make his debut as a teenager, and then throw a perfect game by 20. Should not understate how insane that is. Is this just what it feels like to be watching sports from this point in our lives forward where every time we hear about these films it's no longer excitement there is a little bit just like what the fuck have i done with my life i've been like that ever since the first time a person was drafted in the nfl who was younger than me so eight years my, now <laughs> my moment of that was sean couturier had a hat trick in the playoffs against the penguins i want to say our freshman year and when i found out his birthday and that i was nine days older than him that that was when it really hit for the first time it's only gotten more sense we're some old farts. Let's not look to that. Let's look to the right now. We got Roki for Xavier. Diaz, what about you? How are the Sixers feeling right now, if I may guess as to what we'll hear about? Well, tangentially related, and by tangentially, I mean entirely related. <laughs> the MVP discussion debate seems to already be settled, and it seems that Nikola Jokic is going to win NBA MVP. And we just need to look at this from a lens of who is on each side of it. Because at this point, the writers and the media are who decide this, right? They're all pretty clearly in step-lock alignment that they're going to go with Jokic. That's one thing. But almost every opinion that I've heard of a person that is currently playing basketball and actually goes against these players, and they're the people who know best because they're on the court, how do we need the scheme to stop certain players? And almost every single one of them says that Joel Embiid is the best player in the league and the most dominant player in the league and would be their choice for MVP. So it just blows my mind. You look at some of these media members that have votes. Mike Greenberg has a vote because he hosts a show. I mean, started out Mike and Mike in the morning and now he gets an NBA MVP vote because why? What are the credentials of these voters? That Like there's certain people like Zach Lowe. I like Zach Lowe. I can at least respect that. Like, okay, Zach Lowe is a person that actually watches probably more NBA basketball than anybody else. Not just highlights, but more actual minutes of pure, I'm watching a complete game. I respect that about Zach Lowe. I disagree with him. But guys like Greenberg get a vote. Bill Simmons, who is the most blatant Celtics homer 
perhaps in the whole world, certainly in professional media, and he gets a vote. Do you think he's going to vote for his biggest rival as MVP? There's just so many things about it that don't make any sense to me. Why are these the people that get to decide the MVP? They don't know shit. The Hoopers know, and the Hoopers know that Joel Embiid is the MVP. The only good thing about it, to bring this back full circle to the Sixers, is we're going to get such a locked-in, angry Joel Embiid for however long the playoff run does last. I think the Raptors are a tough matchup. I think we should win. I acknowledge that we could lose it. But we're going to go as far as he's going to take us, and I don't see why he can't just will this team all the way. You can win 16 more games. Absolutely, we can win 16 more games. First round's best of seven now. Okay. There, yeah, you it, it, was, it was five for a while, but... Fo-fo-fo-fo. Fo-fo-fo-fo. Shout out Mo Malone. The first center, I think, to average over 30 since Moses Malone is Joel Embiid. And he played in the 80s, and think how many great centers there have been since then. Shaq led the league in scoring, but he didn't get the 30. I agree with the take that I think KD said, saw it in a graphic. I'm not sure where the quote was sourced from, but it was Kevin Durant saying that if you're going to win it in back-to-back years, there has to be some level of stepping it up the second year. And you look to the most recent people to do that, you can safely say, like, Steph, that second year that he won it, broke the three-point record by over 100. And Giannis's shooting percentages all went up. Like, he had an insane leap even between those two MVP years. And Nikola Jokic said definitely at least as good, if not a slightly better season than last year. But, like, he hasn't been demonstrably better than last year. And something one of my good friends said that I have internalized, I think, is the number one reason that it now feels unjust. Joel Embiid had to keep that team at a good enough level with his best co-player holding out that they weren't going to have to settle for some bullshit trade. Like he had to be good enough for the Harden trade to be possible because the Sixers had to be good enough for that to even be a feasible place for James Harden to land. Right. I mean, we were projected start of the season. People were thinking, all right, if this Ben thing goes the whole way, they're probably about like a six or a seven seed potentially in the play-in. And realistically, you know, we are the four seed, but we're tied exactly with the two and the three seed. So... You know, one game off from... You're, you're hosting a playoff series. Like, it, the exactly. fact that you, the Sixers are hosting a playoff series based on preseason prognostications is nuts. And also, so the other lens that I'd look at it from is just the lens of fairness and the narrative that we're telling of the NBA. You look back, Steve Nash being a back-to-back MVP, almost everybody in hindsight agrees that was wrong. Carl Malone, back-to-back MVP, for a few different reasons. That now is clearly the wrong. Carl Malone, thing. MVP. We look back and we feel that was wrong. Boo that entire game. Utah Jazz team. Boo, they're both Dude, terrible boo. people. They're boo both the entire so franchise. Awful. The Utah Jazz is low-key, I think, the worst sports franchise in America. But we can move I'll, past I, that. I'll never get over just Mitt Romney with the full collared shirt, but a Jazz jersey over top of it. And I think it was a plaid collared shirt, and it was like a red one with a yellow Jazz jersey. Really, worst really franchise. rough look. Rough scenes all around. Rough scenes also with the NBA MVP voting. But again, I think it could end up being the best thing that ever happened to this playoff run because an angry Joel is often a locked-in Joel. When that's the case, I'll take our chances against anybody. Making memories for me, shitty NBA MVP voters that don't know ball. Well, good thing that Joel Embiid is not done making memories for you yet this season, at least. Of course. I have to admit that 
the people I brought are done making memories for me this year. But man, it would be a failure as a sports fan to not look at the season that the San Antonio Spurs had and not just be overwhelmingly happy. Bummer of a game last night. I didn't make it to the end. I, I tuned out about halfway through yeah. the fourth quarter. And, yeah. uh, and, and not out of anything other than just partially very, very sleepy. It's tough rooting for a team in the Western Conference sometimes. <laughs> that was a stupid decision on my part. Hey, I got to live with it. But also because, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, I, I didn't want to see the guys bummed out because it's just been such a fun team to watch. It really was. All we wanted coming in this year was 26 wins. We just wanted that record for Pop. We, and we end up, like I said last week, three first round picks. Almost certainly one of them going to be in the top 10. We have the first all-star that isn't one of the big three, Kawhi Leonard or LaMarcus Aldridge, in, or DeMar DeRozan, sorry. Okay, actually, yeah, we, we've done okay since the big three, but <laughs> first all-star in a couple seasons. It, it's been a little bit. And DeJounte was, was emphatic about that. And you know what? End of the day, we played one more game than the Lakers did, and it was our first primetime nationally broadcast game. Everybody gets one, Peter. Everybody, well, if we hadn't made the play in, we wouldn't have. Just That's nothing. The 35 that the Lakers had. Yeah. And you know what? As that went on, there was a part where you're like, hey, NBA, you don't need to put this on anymore. As it got closer to they're going to miss, it's like, actually, please keep putting this on. Tell me, tell me more about how they want Doc Rivers to come coach the LA Lakers, please. A match made in heaven, if I've ever heard of one. I do just want to shout out the crowd at that New Orleans game because New Orleans typically not known as a big basketball town, usually don't have good crowds. That crowd had an impact on the game. All of did. the playing crowds have been amazing. The Western, I didn't watch as much the Eastern Conference was. I, they felt good. They didn't feel like a weak crowds, but New Orleans and Minnesota both just, I'm so glad that they got to have that everything that has happened to the individuals on the Minnesota roster as people, everything that has happened to the Minnesota franchise, everything that has happened to the twin cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis. Go Timberwolves. I hope you get one game in, in your first round matchup. I hope it's a gentleman's sweep because uh, you're kind of fucked, but Hey, it's, that's absolutely incredible. They're live dogs. They're very live dogs in that series because you never know how Jaw's going to look coming back. I like Pat Beverly a lot. I think John Morant's going to make Pat Beverly look like a, a if, punk. If he's at 100%, I agree. If he's at that 80%, he's going to make Pat Beverly look like a punk. I love John Morant. I would take a bullet for John Morant. That seems he's a lot. Great. He's absolutely right now, after this season, my favorite non-spur NBA player. Like, I Sixers, number one team after that. I don't care about the rest of the Grizzlies. John Morant is fucking electric i love watching john moran i hope they go on a run that's fair but i'm not taking a bullet for any millionaire i'm very willing to take bullets i would take some i don't don't know what that says about me but there's there's (laughs) there's not a lot holding me back from that load them in the chamber baby (laughs) anyway as you all might have gathered by the fact that we don't have a fourth guest here it's time for us to return to our regular scheduled programming of converging and conversing on our inductees for guys, and we, we've been doing this for a little bit. We've got, I feel like you can almost refer to it as a back catalog of material by this point, and that was what I, I wanted to bring to the table as the last successful litigant for someone all the way back in 019. I wanted us to look through just any of the stories we've told before, because something that I think has been so great about these stories are the side characters that we find along the way. Gotta love a good just cameo from some insane person for two seconds. And as 
the the franchise mindset permeates through all of culture nowadays. It's so important when one of those small side characters has any amount of recognition that you make an entire new spin-off franchise out of that. And so we're going to take some of our better favorite side Saul. characters. Yeah, exactly. This is I'm telling you, we're bringing some heat tonight. This is about to be a better call Saul episode. I'm speaking for myself personally, I'm speaking with confidence for the two of you because we have racked our minds to find who we thought needed to be delved into a little further. And while this was someone that was brought up during a portion that I, I brought, I completely have to acknowledge Diaz for the interest in the individual I'm about to bring. There was a particular quote that you had that has lingered in my mind, and I knew I had to talk about Selva Lewis Burdett Jr., better known as Lou Burdett. Now, we discussed Lou Burdett way back when, when we talked about Harvey Haddock's 12 perfect innings in a non-perfect game, speaking of perfect games. Lou Burdett was, of course, the opposing pitcher that day. And you at the time were like, Lou Burdett said, the greatest game of all time was not enough to defeat me, Lou Burdett. Give me all that money. And I just really loved that mindset. And so I decided to dive in to our good friend Lou Burdett. There are some excellent nuggets about Luberdet. Going back to when he is born in the town of Nitro, West Virginia. It's technically not a town, though, when he's born. Nitro, West Virginia, it is spelled exactly the way you think it is because it is named for something called nitrocellulose. That is a primary chemical component in smokeless gunpowder. Basically, in World War I, there was an area of West Virginia that had to get turned into a bunch of factory plants to make this nitrocellulose. And a community just started calling itself Nitro. And in 1932, it was finally incorporated into a township six years after Lou Burdett was born into this town. Uh, so Nitro, West Virginia, it is a town that has never exceeded a population of 8,000. For that reason, their high school does not even have a baseball team. So Lou Burdett plays a lot of sandlot baseball, but his only like organized sport is football, where he gets to like demonstrate his athleticism. Surprisingly enough... He does not get a baseball career based on his high school football performance. <laughs> but there is some good news. As you might imagine, the leading employer in this town is one of these plants, and it's called Viscos. That's the company that runs this plant. Lou Burdett's dad, Selva Lewis Burdett Sr., he hooks up all of his kids with jobs there. He hooks Lou up specifically because he can be a messenger boy for this company and also play for the company baseball team. He has one season where he plays with his company baseball team. He goes 12 and 2. Two of the companies that he plays against are DuPont and Monsanto. He whoops both of their asses. <laughs> <laughs> and he does well Luber enough Dett, that, like. Luber Dett, the, the working class hero. To be fair, I bet this is before Monsanto has their genetically modified organisms because I can't imagine that the company baseball team for Monsanto at this point is anything less than a bunch of just completely steroided out motherfuckers and absolutely dominate every like beer softball league. But at the time, this is a good enough performance for him to go to the University of Richmond just a little bit. And that is going to get him noticed by some major league scouting. Not all of the scouts like what they see. In fact, one person from a Boston baseball franchise, I'm saying Boston baseball franchise because this is what will later be known as the Atlanta baseball franchise. And I'm going to try and very Thank carefully... You, yeah, go around. It's yeah. not the Red Sox. Uh, but a scout from that franchise does see him, says, I don't like the way you pitch. You may as well forget about baseball. That, that is like the two-sentence quote that a scout told him from the Boston team. I, I do appreciate when 
giving bad news, somebody who gets right to the point. So I do appreciate, even if he was wrong, he, he just got right to it, you know? He was very quickly wrong. Well, he is wrong, but we'll have a chance to make up for that mistake later. First, though, one of Boston's rivals is going to get him. In 1947, he is drafted by the New York Yankees. And he gets started out in one of their minor league teams, the Amsterdam New York Rugmakers. An excellent <laughs> minor league team name. He plays a full season there and then very quickly rises through the ranks of the other levels. He makes a couple, like, brief relief appearances for the Yankees in 1950. This is his age 23 season, and that's his first cup of coffee. However, the Yankees' bullpen is loaded at this time. Their rotation is loaded, and they want some more pieces, but they don't want to take the time to develop this young guy. So a very controversial trade happens between a Boston team and the New York Yankees. Tell me if you've heard this one before. There's a guy by the name of Johnny Sane. Johnny Sane was the number two pitcher for the Boston baseball franchise. And, you know, they've taken some time. They've watched this guy, Johnny Sane, pitch for years and years. He's had an absolutely dominant stretch coming into this. He's been the number two behind future Hall of Famer Warren Spahn. And from 1946 to 1948, he accumulates over 15 wars. So Johnny Sane, phenomenal pitcher. He's also starting to get old. And the guys that are in charge of the Boston baseball franchise now do disagree with that scout from earlier. They've decided, actually, that they do kind of like the cut of this Lou Burdett kid's jib. So there's a big trade of Johnny Sane for Lou Burdett. This initially works out incredibly well for the Yankees. God damn it. Uh, they move Johnny Sane to the bullpen, and they win the next three World Series. It's 1951, 1952, and 1953. So that's rough. But they don't come away with nothing here in the Boston baseball franchise. They've got something with Lou Burdett. Now, there's one thing I want to do real quick before we move on from Johnny Sane. As we are talking about the category of good side characters, i got to drop some nuggets about Johnny Sane real quick before we completely move on and like never mention him again. He is from a town called Havana, Arkansas. It was previously called several other things. The thing it was called immediately before Havana was Greenville, except then there were like eight Greenville, Arkansas, and a bunch of them <laughs> came together like, we need to pick some other names. So this one picked Havana. Sure, why not? Despite being this tiny little town, it's actually produced three major league pitchers. One of their names is James Huey Walkup. He was a right-handed pitcher. They also produced a left-handed pitcher named James Elton Walkup. I am dead serious. There are two different major league pitchers named James Walkup from this same tiny town called Havana, Arkansas, born 10 years apart, who just happened to pitch with the opposite arms. Arkansas the third major really league... needs to get onto some different names. <laughs> well, the... Walkup. They, they have a third one eventually, and it is Johnny Sane. He is the first ever major league pitcher to pitch to Jackie Robinson, and he's the last ever pitcher to pitch professionally to Babe Ruth. So that's it. We don't need to know anything else more about Johnny Sane. Now I've mentioned him, and someday if we do this category again, I can come back to that, because that's just a whole bunch of gold waiting in our hills. But... Last to the Babe, first to Jackie. And from the same town as the Jameses Walkup. I think that's how you have to stylize it, like attorneys general. Or is it the Walkup Jameses? Walkup Jameses is also good. And... Here's good news. Lou Burdett is also pretty good. That's what they find out in Boston pretty quickly on. He's pitching out of the bullpen for about the first season and a half. This actually includes their move to Milwaukee, where there will now be the Milwaukee baseball franchise. So now I will refer to them as Milwaukee so that I don't say the name. Um, <laughs> halfway through that second season, someone in their rotation gets hurt. They finally stretch out this young kid, Lou Burdett. They're going to get him worked into the rotation. He only starts 13 games that season. 
he pitches six complete games in those 13 starts. And they're like, all right, we, we got one here. We got someone. So Luberdet after that, is going to begin a stretch of eight consecutive seasons with 230 innings pitched. He's, he's about to absolutely be a workhorse. So let's talk a little bit about what Luberdet is working with. He is a finesse pitcher. He's also a very twitchy pitcher, apparently. He would be constantly like fidgeting on the mound, messing with his hat, messing with his uniform. Some people might be suspicious of this. Teammates, his own manager, Fred Haney, would maybe say like, oh, Burdett, he would make coffee nervous, but all in all, good guy. Some of the other managers, like Birdie Tebbets of the Cincinnati Reds, would come out and just say, he's a cheating spitballer. They were, again, going after your heart, Diaz. Not mincing words. People Love it. constantly say that Lou Burdett is a spitballer throughout his entire career. It is something that dogs him. And he's a very good control pitcher. Of pitchers that have thrown at least 3,000 innings, he has the fifth lowest walk rate of all time behind Robin Roberts, Grave Maddox, Carl Hubble, and Juan Marichal. And he claims that he never threw a spitball. Now, we do know that he definitely tried to learn about the spitball. While he was with the Yankees, there's a guy, Burley Grimes, roving pitching coach Google for them. Search history. Yeah. Like, he 100% had interest in it. And actually, Burley Grimes is the one who's like, I don't want to show you that, man. You're going to get in trouble. You're not ready for this heat. You can't handle it. But Burley Grimes also tells Luberdet, people will know that you've talked to me. And if you continue with the mannerisms that you have, you know what you can do. You can use the spitball as a psychological weapon. Don't actually pitch it. Just cultivate and maintain the reputation that you do, and you'll be psyching all the other batters out. And so this becomes Luberdet's whole shtick. This probably plays into kind of why he has all of these weird mannerisms on it. And the other players absolutely hate him for it. Okay, he swears, the spitball was my best pitch and I never threw it. But you ask someone like Don Hoke, for instance, they'll say, only once did I ever see water fly off a spitball. And the man who threw me that pitch was Burdett. They actually log a formal complaint with National League President Warren Giles about it. Warren Giles says, look, I can't stop someone from putting moisture on their hands. As long as that moisture is not going to the ball, as long as you can't give me definitive proof, Luberdet's fine. So nothing ever actually comes of this in his career, but it is absolutely something that he's dealing with as he builds his legacy. That legacy really kicks off in 1956. He's going to have a stretch from 1956 to 1961. That's kind of his five-year peak. For the first four of those years, he's actually going to earn down-ballot MVP votes. That first like full kind of breakout season in 1956, one thing, they are being energized by absolute record attendance across the league. Milwaukee is drawing bigger crowds than any other team by far like Milwaukee baseball, the hotbed of baseball in the country. But they absolutely are. Uh, another big reason Milwaukee is succeeding is there's a guy named Hank Aaron in right field. So he's pretty good. He's in his third season at this point in 1956. But as this franchise will be later on in Atlanta, the main reason behind the sustained success that it's about to have is a trio of starters. I already mentioned Hall of Famer Warren Spahn. They're also joined by Bob Buell and then Luber Depp. This trio, like Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin in the future, they're the ones pacing Milwaukee. Actually, Burdett leads the league with ERA in 56, a 2.70, his lowest ever in his career, finishes 22nd in MVP voting, and the Milwaukee baseball team has a great season. They do not make the playoffs until the next year. In 1957, they come back with a vengeance, an absolutely phenomenal season for them. They are 95-59-1. They make the World Series, and who is Lou Burdett ready to face? But the team that traded him away, the New York Yankees, he has now been told by a scout from one franchise that he should give up baseball. 
He was then drafted by another franchise that traded him to the one that said he should give up on baseball. And now with that franchise, which has since moved to another geographic area, they have managed to come back and face the initial franchise that drafted him in the World Series. What he does next in the 1957 World Series. I think we're all suckers for Madison Bumgarner here in 2014. We can all admit phenomenal performance. And given that he has a wild card game and a couple other series, might be a better playoff performance overall. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there is no one, I think, on a pitcher level that has contributed as single-handedly to a World Series victory as Lou Burdett in 1957. Game one is dropped by Warren Spahn. So Burdett comes in for game two. He evens it up, no problem. Allows two runs, and they end up coming away with a 4-2 victory. It is a complete game. So he's already pitched those nine innings. Rotation goes through. The Braves get it tied 2-2. Game five, he comes back in for a second start. He's like, you know what? That complete game was good last time. But let me raise you one higher. Complete game shutout. He's now got two wins, 18 innings out of 18 possible innings pitched in it. All is set for Milwaukee to clinch the next day. Except, unfortunately, they do not. Because Don Larson goes ahead and, and takes care of business in game six. Brings us to game seven. Now, Warren Spahn is set to start. Unfortunately, Warren Spahn has something that was referred to in 1957 as the Asia flu. This was a flu epidemic that came out in 1957. It was of the H1 virus family. Uh, It's called the Asia flu. Don't love it. And Warren Spahn did not love it because it did not allow him to pitch in game seven. And so on two days rest, Lou Burdett takes the mound and he throws a second complete game shutout, meaning that he has now pitched 27 innings. He has allowed 21 hits, four walks, struck out 13 batters, and he allowed only those two earned runs from the first game with his .67 ERA in 27 innings and three wins, most importantly. He walks away with the 1957 World Series MVP and a World Series ring, the only one that the city of Milwaukee has ever won in baseball. This is a peak, it's a climax, but he's got some more things that we need to do to further enter into the historical record. There are plenty of World Series MVPs. I can't name them all. But I will never forget about Luber Deck because there's a couple other things he's got to do. The 1958 year, he is honestly probably even better than he was the year before. He actually wins his first ever NL Player of the Month. It is the fifth ever Player of the Month award given out. This is the first year that Warren Giles, that National League president, decides to poll the locker rooms and ask the managers, hey, who do you think is the best player in the National League right now? Gets all the answers. The very first players of the year, you guys want to take a guess, 1958, who are two very good players in 1958 who could conceivably be named National League Players of the Month? Position players. You could say Clemente. Nope, not Clemente. A little too early for that. We've got Willie one Mays? in the same division. Willie Mays is one, and then the other one is in the same division as Clemente. Lou Brock? Not Lou Brock. Good guess. Same team. Stan, um, Stan the Man Musial. The first Damn. ever National League Players of the Month are Willie Mays and Stan the Man Musial. But the fifth ever is Lou Burdett. They wrap up 1958 once again, top of the National League. Who should Lou Burdett face in the World Series? None other than, once again, the New York Yankees. Now, this time, Milwaukee races out to a lead in the series. They're actually up 3-1 at one point. Then they remember that at some point in the future, they're going to be a franchise that exists in Atlanta, and they fuck that up. Uh, (laughs) He is brought in, and he unfortunately is not able to help them take care of business prior to Game 7. So in two days rest, he's put out there for Game 7. 
And this is going into the game. Everyone's like, what are you doing? This guy has more mileage than maybe any other starter, short of Warren Spahn, also on the team, of anyone in the major leagues right now. Why are you putting him out here? For most of the game, he silences those doubters. He allows two runs through seven innings and then gives up four in the eighth. He's given the loss. The Yankees win the 1958 World Series. And uh, everyone at the time kind of criticizes this. It is the last time that he ever makes it to the postseason. But he's got a couple other highlights. Next year, he actually makes both All-Star games. But in 1959, he is most well-remembered for having a game against Harvey Haddix. Luberdette allows 12 hits in that game and not a single run. Luberdette actually calls Harvey Haddix after that game, trying to be humorous, to lighten the situation, to kind of engage in that fraternity of pitchers. He calls him up and says, hey, you deserve to win, but I scattered all my hits and you bunched your one. Reportedly, Harvey Haddix did not have a very good sense of humor and he hung up immediately after that line. <laughs> Some other things That's about Luberdette, and actually I, I forgot to mention this, that back in 1957, he capitalizes on that fame very, very well. Luberdette is technically a recording artist. He has released exactly one single ever. The A-side was an original song called Strike Three and You're Out. And the B-side was called Mary Lou. I cannot find any record of Three Strikes and You're Out anywhere on the internet. I legitimately looked in every illegal torrent site that we're not going to name here. I'm already on a video piracy watch list for Universal. That's not a joke. But I did find some video of Mary Lou and Luberdette. Sounds exactly like a celebrity who would be trying to capitalize off a moment of fame by making a pretty mediocre Rockabilly album. It's not all that good, but hey, you know what? He is a recording artist, and he's got one last piece of art to put together. August 1960, more than a year after being on the other end of that Harvey Haddix bid, he is playing against the Philadelphia Phillies. They have traveled up to Milwaukee to make up for a game that they actually had rained out back in April. I don't know if Luberdette was just stewing, thinking about that game for several months. Comes out with a vengeance. In the fifth inning, he hits Tony Gonzalez with a pitch. Tony Gonzalez is erased by a double play later that inning. And for that reason, Luberdette still faces the minimum of 27 batters in his only no-hitter of his career. The hit batsman is the only base runner that he allows. An absolute masterpiece and kind of the poetic end of his time in Milwaukee. The next year, they get a new manager. His name's Birdie Tebbets. You might remember him from when I said that he called him a cheating spitballer. Uh, Birdie <laughs> Tebbets and Luberdette do not get along, and Luberdette is not much longer for the Milwaukee baseball team. He is pretty summarily sent on a multi-year odyssey between St. Louis, the Cubs, the Phillies for a little bit, and the California Angels, plays for them very briefly. During this time, as you might expect from a crazy pitch kind of guy who's already tried to learn those special ones from the masters of the craft. He does try and become a knuckleballer at one point. It is not enough to really keep the career going all that late. So finally, in 1967, uh, alluding to the spitball, his quote is, well, they were starting to hit the dry side of the ball. So time for him to, to hang up the cleats, and he finishes with a career record of 203 and 144 in 373 games started. That is 3,067.1 innings pitched, an ERA in the threes, over 1,000 strikeouts, Decent 28.6 war. All in all, it's a solid career. And he ends up staying as like an old guy that shows up at games for the Atlanta franchise for a while. The star and franchise mend their fence after Birdie Tebbets is let go later. He does sadly pass away in 2007, but there is one last fun little epilogue to this. In 2017, there's a guy by the name of Nolan Fontana who makes the Angels roster. He is named after Nolan Ryan. But despite being named after Nolan Ryan, he is Luberdette's grandson. 
Nibirde actually lived with him for the last couple years of his life. And so Nolan Fontana continued the Major League family tradition. He's never going to make the Hall of Fame unless he makes it on the Veterans Committee. He did last the full 15 years of eligibility. He and teammate Warren Spahn both entered the ballot in 1973. Warren Spahn, first ballot, voted in. He hangs around for the full 15 at the time, only ever maxes out at 24.1% of the vote. So unless he is looked on favorably by one of those veterans committees in the future, never going to make the Hall of Fame. However, I think he's a perfect fit for the Hall of Guy, and that is my case today for Luber Debt. It's a great case. I do feel sympathy that he did not get his due justice for the baseball hall. I like the opportunity to right some wrongs. It's a really good pitch. I see what you did there. The really good pitch. But no, I mean, it, the, the, the main thing I take away from his career is the joke that he made to Harvey is kind of really his story. Because even in those 27 innings in the World Series, he said, what, 21 hits? Like, I Yeah, no, his whip is still not runs. great. <laughs> his whip is over one in that. Between walks, yeah, no, he definitely exceeds 27 base runners. So you would expect an ERA with the whip over one, probably around like three, if it was narrowly over one. He was he was near the top of the leaderboards in fielding independent pitching once. He had a 3.10 FIP in like 59. Other than that, he regularly outperforms his FIP his whole career. So yeah, that's another great thing about Lou Burnett. He looks much better than he should in some ways. Take that advanced yeah. analytics. I love it. Anybody who shoves a face in analytics, like, you know, there's the one guy who's like, oh, well, if you look at this contact rate and blah, 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 he's actually not that effective. And then I like the fan in the stands that says, Ball, ball hit for out. That's all that matters. He got that ball dog hit. in him. Got the dog out. The dog's fully out. And the batters are also out because Luberdat knows how to get him to hit it where they are. Important skill for a pitcher. David Fisdale would like him. This is definitely David Fisdale's favorite 1950s Milwaukee pitcher. Well, I mean, hey, could be in the whole National League. I mean, let's not sell him short. <laughs> that was a good presentation, James. And I have another guy, a side character who is truly in his life the main character in the current Remember That Guy universe. He was the side character for a story Xavier told about Bucko Kilroy and Bucko's contributions to the 1949 NFL champion Philadelphia Eagles. And managed to pull that repeat off. Bucko needed some reinforcements, though, to be able to get it in the second year. So I want to tell you all the story of the last of the 60-minute men to play in the NFL. That is, players that would play on both sides of the ball. Hall of Fame, linebacker, and center for first the Penn Quakers, but then the Philadelphia Eagles, Chuck Bednarik, a.k.a. Concrete Charlie. Okay. Okay, this is good. Chuck Bednarik is a second-generation American. Is Your first generation is when your parents emigrate, correct? And then the second generation is the child that's born. As I, I am... Fairly certain yes. that is the case, yes. So he is a second-generation American, the son of Slovakian immigrants, who came to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania to look for work and ended up working for Bethlehem Steel. Chuck was born five years after their arrival and ends up attending high school at Liberty High School. Liberty, patriotism, these things are key in the early formative years of Chuck Bednarik because as an individual that was born in 1925, an individual that was the age of 18 in 1943, as you can imagine, good old Chuck had to go serve his country. Slovakia? Immediately of Slovakia. Yes, he joined Slovakia for the famous Slovakian 
conflicts. The, the second Slovakian conflict, actually, is what it was. Uh, okay, we should make... There have been some Slovakian conflicts in the past 50 years. We shouldn't make too much light I literally of just read today about the Slovakian military, so I do, like... Yeah, it was not a thing back then. I apologize for bringing this up in the first place. Well, I do want to say, to to the credit of Slovakia, his initial schooling was in the Slovakian language. There was a school in Bethlehem, which was a Slovak parochial school, that taught everything in Slovak. So, Chuck Bednarik was bilingual. Anyway, he doesn't go to fight for the Slovakian army. He goes to fight in the United States Army Air Forces, where he serves as a B-24 waste gunner with the 8th Air Force. He did over 30 combat missions over Germany, for which he was awarded an Air Medal and four Oak Leaf Clusters, which is the European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal. He also received four Battle Stars. So, already decorated at, at this young age. And when he returns from war, of course, one of the great benefits of serving in the U.S. military forces is you get free education. So he chooses to go to the finest university that is also as close to Bethlehem and his family as possible, which is the University of Pennsylvania, the Penn Quakers. Uh, Penn State. When you said finest, I thought you were just about to like go on a pitch for a little bit about your employers. Penn is a great place. They are known as the social ivy. You can interpret that as you will. But especially at this time, Penn is actually one of the football powerhouses. The Ivies and the military academies and Notre Dame really dominate that period. And I guess Notre Dame's had moderately more success since then. Not much more. But anyway, at the time, Chuck Bednarik is getting his footing here as a 60-minute man. And at Penn, he is a true 60-minute man. Because he is not only the center, he's not only the linebacker, he also is the punter for the team. So Whoa, okay, and- that's just a completely unrelated special teams job. He's a center, he's a linebacker, he will snap it as long as the guy is uh, quarterback. But if you need a punter, we need to get Concrete Charlie back there to receive the long snap and punt it away. So truly every play that was a, a play from the line of scrimmage. Concrete Charlie was on the field for it for a full 60 minutes. Even linebacker and center feels like a nuts combo. Cause I, I think the few people that pull it off now, it's pretty much like you're a blocker in some capacity on offense and you're a pass rusher in some capacity on defense. Cause those are the most similar jobs like center and, and linebackers. Mm-hmm. I guess it's probably different back then, but those are wildly different jobs now. Well, they're, you know, ironically, I was thinking which centers today could go both ways like that. Like, who's fast and shifty enough as a center? Jason Kelsey is honestly the only guy I could think of. But back then it was expected, and back then that's what they did. Also, so his size was 6'3", 233. At that size, you could you could play linebacker today. You would be, You'd be destroyed literally in the broken in half as a center. In his time at Penn, of course... Back then, as freshman, you never played with the varsity, so he plays the three years with the varsity. And he's a three-time All-American in those three years. Uh, so no doubt about it, one of the greatest players in the land. And I think this is really reflected by the fact that for his senior year in 1948, he wins the Maxwell Award, which is given to the greatest football player in the nation. One award that is given to recognize that. The other, perhaps more well-known, is the Heisman. He was the Heisman? It's just third in the Heisman voting as oh, okay. a center St- and a Still, he'd be one of the guys on stage in the show now. That's insane. As a, again, primarily center, 
is what he was most well known for in college, at least. Linebacker is certainly the reputation he gets more in the NFL. This does serve as the perfect segue. So senior year, wins the Maxwell, third in Heisman voting as a center slash linebacker. He was voted in 1969, nice, as <laughs> the greatest center of all time. Wow. So, again, that's 1969. There's been a lot of football played since then. There's people that could have surpassed. But for his age, far none, universally considered the greatest center of all time. My question then is, why is the Remington Award not the Bednarik Award? And why is the Bednarik Award not something else? Well, the Bednarik Award is the Defensive Player of the Year Award. Can't you just make it the Bednarik Award and, and then the second Bednarik Award? Because it feels weird yeah. for the Remington Award to be named after the second best center ever because we already had an award named after the, 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 the best center ever. You know, it's, it's the same logic as why... So here's what I'll say in defense of Remington. It's the same logic as why Joel Embiid needs the MVP. Jokic already got one, damn it. So Embiid <laughs> deserves one, too. Chuck, we can't just name all the awards to Chuck Bednarik. Oh, the best linebacker is the Chuck Bednarik. The best center is the Chuck Bednarik. The best defensive player. The best sometimes punter award goes to Chuck Bednarik. Matt Ariza just won another award. Congratulations. He won a guy. He won a Bednarik. But... All of these are just to speak about his college accolades and the, the recognition of the impact that he's had on the collegiate game. He also needs to be recognized for his contributions to the professional game. Again, as mentioned, 1949, first overall pick by the Philadelphia Eagles is Chuck Bednarik. They keep the hometown boy. They've heard so much about him. They want to keep him playing in the same stadium at this time. Franklin Field is still where the Eagles played. So it's literally... The same field, he has a shift locker rooms, maybe moved down about 500 feet. Otherwise, he's in the same building. Still is able to work from the same office. That familiarity is probably what helped him to be able to assimilate so well into that Philadelphia Eagles team that in his rookie season does end up defending their title and winning a second consecutive NFL championship. Kind of quick, quick curiosity, how did the champions of the first overall pick in the draft... It wasn't the first overall pick, so I missed. I I. Oh, okay. Their first round pick. That, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I stated that confusingly. The first overall pick of the Philadelphia Eagles was Chuck Bednarik. He was not the first overall pick. Didn't have territorial picks back then, where you could just pick somebody randomly without having to go through the actual draft. You know, I wish, and I'll be the one to go on the record right now and say we should bring that back. It's good. Not in, here's what I would say: not in the first round. The first round, the elite talents in terms of just making sure that there's equity in the league. But the second round should just be territorial. It'd be fun. Unless it's a really, really good player from Philadelphia. <laughs> you should be allowed to stay home. We can't force him to leave. But I digress. If you commit to it, you have to like say, no, this supersedes everything. If you're going to believe in the territorial picks, you have to say they come first. They come first or they don't come at all. Like a second round territorial right. pick is bullshit. Then I feel bad for like the Nashvilles and whatnot. Not to say, Dr. Kevin Dyson Make better a fantastic job down there. Convince but, athletes to move and convince them to start families and have incredibly athletic children. It's a long-term investment, but then you're set. Got to see if it's a long plan. So, Did I just accidentally do eugenics? Uh, with a couple extra steps, but <laughs> but getting back to it, getting back to good old Concrete Charlie. First, Concrete Charlie, you would assume he gets that nickname just because he hits hard. You know, Concrete's hard. This is a guy that hits hard. Concrete Charlie. No. This is, of course, the era when you couldn't just simply live on a pro athlete's salary. 
So his off-season job was quite literally selling concrete in Westchester, Pennsylvania. This is what he does, is how he makes his money in the off-season. And there was a sports writer by the name of Hugh Brown for the Evening Bulletin, who first wrote in an article that Bednarik is, quote, as hard as the concrete he sells. Notice the, the line is not how hard he hits. Was uh, very passionate about how he felt about Chuck. <laughs> uh, this is also back when comics are talking about like Batman's boner all the time. This is very true. It's an incredibly phallic time in our society. But either way, Concrete Charlie, one tough SOB and one concrete selling salesman. So we mentioned that he won two NFL championships. I went to flash forward to 1960. I want to flash forward to the the semifinal. Win this, you get to the NFL championship. And the Eagles are playing the oldest rival, the New York Giants. Now, we do hate the Giants. We do hate the Giants. And somebody who really hated the Giants was Chuck Bednarik. In particular, Chuck Bednarik is this tough, rough, concrete selling on on the weekends guy. Very tough individual. And then meanwhile, for the New York Giants, we have Frank Gifford, who... Of course, goes on famously to comment on Monday Night Football, had several acting roles, some may say. A pretty boy. Some who sell concrete may say. He is a pretty boy. (laughs) So, Frank Gifford plays wide receiver, of course, for the New York Giants. And it's a point in the middle of the game where Frank Gifford is running a crossing route. About a shallow five-yard cross. And this, of course, is bringing him right to where the Mike linebacker, Chuck Bednarik, would be. So the pass is a little bit out in front of Frank Gifford. He does manage to catch it. He takes two steps. He gets absolutely clobbered by Chuck Bednarik. Frank Gifford is immediately knocked out cold. Fumbles the ball. There is a great picture of this. If you Google Chuck Bednarik, it's going to be the first picture you see of a New York Giant laid flat on his back, motionless. And Chuck Bednarik standing over him with a fist pointed as if he was about to jump on him and start pounding on him. But he's just really doing the fist pump. And he is so excited to be standing over this lifeless body that is Frank Giffords. I mean, he's like 100% like killed someone in the war. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It is. And it is a great picture. Unfortunately, this is an audio medium. So I would encourage you, if you're on your phone, whip out Google right now. Google Chuck Bednarik. You're going to see the picture. It's the first result. It is an all-time great sports picture. Now, what Chuck says about that, though, is that he says he was celebrating the fumble. But if you look at the picture, he's very clearly looking down, not at a ball that has been fumbled, but at a man that has been incapacitated. So I don't know how much I trust Concrete Chuck on that one. (laughs) Um, Gifford was knocked out for 18 months after this. He missed the entire next season. Okay, now it's a little bit less enjoyable. He misses the entire next season. And then did eventually come back in 1962. But here's the thing. You may feel bad having heard that, but who doesn't feel bad about that is Frank Gifford. He called it a clean shot. And he said, exactly, Chuck hit me exactly the way I would have hit him in the circumstances. So this is a, they called him what? It's a clean football play. It's just an illustration of what football is. It is an inherently incredibly violent sport. In fact, that, 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 that is a perfect time for me to bring up one quote that Concrete Charlie said about playing linebacker. So they asked Chuck Bednarik, just describe to us what a linebacker is. And this is exactly what he said. A linebacker is an animal. He's like a tiger or a lion that goes after prey. 
wants to eat them. He wants to eat the shit out of them. That's a linebacker. And just a absolutely vicious man, of course. I feel like um, for anything where it's like, oh, why do all these football players have severe injuries after after they oh, retire? A, just oh, answer with that quote. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's also some foreshadowing, Xavier, unfortunately. I would also say, so for Al Mister, who is played on the offensive line with Chubb Bednarik, said he was 75% animal, 25% human being. So <laughs> truly a person that was born simply to play football. Ray Didinger actually said that as well. And it speaks to how important football was in his life because if you ever played football, a spiel that you would always get from a head coach is you should have your three F's in order. You should be your family, your faith, and then football. Football was number one for Chuck. We'll put it that way. Family came after football. His own family has spoken about this. Not that he was particularly abusive in any specific way, but was not very present at home. Again, football was the, was the full priority. But to that effect, he was able to perfect his craft so well that Tommy McDonald, a wide receiver on those Eagles teams, also said, if you had a magic wand, you'd want to make 11 Chuck Pegnerics. So, revered by everybody that he ever played with. Not revered by those that he played against, as you would imagine. Everybody famously knows Chuck Knoll as the Steelers coach. Well, before that, he played for the Browns. And they had quite a rivalry. Could say Chuck Knoll started it first. He smashed good old Concrete Charlie in the face during a fourth quarter play. A punting play. And Chuck has a long memory. And he remembers this. So a few years later, they have an on-field confrontation, basically just arguing about their shared history. And Bednarik just starts swinging post-game. Starts lighting him up a little bit. Hurts him, not severely, not to the point that he misses any games, but enough that NFL Commissioner Burt Bell fined Bednarik $500 and demanded that he apologize to Noel for the punch. So Bednarik goes up to Chuck Noel, issues his apology, and Chuck Knoll had just one word to say back to him. Bullshit. I mean, it absolutely was. And with this brutal playing style, you would think for every action, there's uh, equal and opposite re reaction, right? The force you give is the force you take. He only misses three games over the courses of his 14 seasons in the NFL, playing both ways and playing with this vicious physical style. The last of the 60-minute men, he was an eight-time All-Pro. And that's not like, oh, he got four for one and four for the other. Like, no, like eight times he was all pro on both sides of the ball. Rated wow. in the 2010 NFL poll, he was ranked 35 on the top 100 in terms of greatest NFL players of all time. One spot ahead of him was Deion Sanders. And now this is interesting segue because, as you could imagine, for a rough, tough SOB, Deion Sanders is not somebody who is cut from the same jib in his eyes. No. He criticized not just Deion Sanders, but also Troy Brown. Because people would ask him, oh, well, you know, you were the last 60-minute man. What do you think about these guys? He basically was saying, you know, it's easy to play out there on the perimeter. If you want to be a man, you got to play on the inside and take your hits. Like, neither of them could tackle my grandma kind of stuff. Also said they are pussyfoots and they, quote, suck air after five plays. They couldn't tackle my wife, Emma, is what he actually said. Not even his grandma. He does give him the credit of his wife, at least. He also had an acrimonious relationship with the Eagles, unfortunately. The beef goes back to Jeffrey Lurie takes over the Eagles in 1996. And the NFL had a rule in place at the time that essentially said that owners cannot 
make financial transactions, buy from, sell to, whatever, former players. So this rule is in place, and so when Chuck Bednarik asked Jeffrey Lurie to buy 100 copies of his new book to distribute to the team, Jeff says, I'm not able to do it. Chuck doesn't care about the rules. Chuck cares that you're not buying his book. So he holds the grudge to the point that ahead of the 2005 Super Bowl against the Patriots, Super Bowl 39, he publicly and openly said that he was rooting for the Patriots. He did not want to see the Eagles win. Because of 100 books? Because of 100 books. Or just I mean, give them the books. He could just give them the book. That was an option. But then he took them as being cheap asses, you know, that kind of thing. So after this in the Super Bowl, we come to 2006 in training camp, and they do manage to make amends. The feud seems to be ended. They hug it out. They shake hands. And you may remember Reggie White passed away at the end of the 2005 season. So now coming into the training camp, Reggie White was to be inducted into the Hall of Fame that summer. So it was a topic, and you know they, they asked like the typical softball question, you know, you're a great defensive player. Reggie's a great defensive player. Can you talk about him? And he actually has negative things to say. He says, oh, he's a showboat. Doesn't care about the team. Only cared about himself. Blah, blah, blah. And people are like, what the fuck? Like, Read the room, just, man. This guy just died. But here's the thing. He apologizes immediately the next day because he said that he thought that he was talking about Terrell Owens. Who, of course, what? had just left the Eagles. I understand why you're saying what, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit now, and we're going to advance to March 26, 2011, where Chuck Bednarik is rushed to the hospital, says he's in serious condition. They didn't give any further details. He does end up coming out of the hospital. He stays with his family for his remaining years, and in 2015, he does pass away. Rapidly became ill on March 20th and dies one day later, March 21st, 2015. This was before they were checking people for CTE, but his family does confirm afterwards that for some time he had been dealing with Alzheimer's, had dementia for years, and to your point earlier, Xavier, football-related injuries played a role in his decline. So I am willing to accept that explanation from from good old Chuck, um, but that is a brief synopsis of the life of one Charles Bednarik, the pride of Slovakia, and... And, and the pride and the, of Bethlehem, the, Pennsylvania. And the pride of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The last of the 60-minute men. And ironically enough, I don't know why I'm just realizing this now at the end, he may have chosen the number 60 for that reason. That he was the last That would be great. Men. That would be great if it was intentional. We'll give him credit for it. Yeah, we'll give him credit for it. And of course, that number 60 is retired by the Philadelphia Eagles. Concrete Charlie. Concrete Charlie is such a good name. Damn. The, I, I enjoyed that more every single time that you said it. All-time great nickname. An all-time great player. And dare I say, an all-time great guy. But we do have one other guy that we need to hear about. Xavier, please enlighten Lay us. Lay it on us, baby. So way back in the third episode of this podcast, James regaled us with the story of Anderson Verizhao. Hell yeah. And they mentioned Verizhao's time at Barcelona where uh, Barca had won back-to-back Liga ACB titles, even if Verjao didn't play a part in those playoffs. So the person that I want to talk about didn't have the lengthy NBA career that Verjao had after the Barca pit stop, but who was a key member of those Barca teams that Verjao got to watch and learn from. 
Do either of you remember Juan Carlos Navarro? Of course. One of the first great European guards. Absolutely. So Juan Carlos Navarro was born on June 13th, 1980, just outside of Barcelona. Literally a mile outside the city proper and still in the province of Barcelona. And he started playing basketball at the age of eight at his local club before moving to the Barcelona Academy at the age of 12. Because in Europe, unlike here, if you're signed for a team as a youth, you go and play in their academy and you move up through the academy. And if you're good, they can just sign you outright. No draft in in Europe. Navarro spends five years with the Barca Academy before making his first team league debut at the age of 17 on November 23rd of 1997. Navarro is a really highly regarded young player at this point. He had been selected to participate in the Nike Hoop Summit that year. This was the third year of that. That's the Team USA versus Team World's prospect game. This year, the Team USA was led by Larry Hughes, Ron Artest, Baron Davis, and Shane Battier. But Navarro said, nah, I'm not coming to uh, Lake Buena Vista, Florida to play in this game. I really want to make my debut for Barcelona, so I'm going to stay here and keep working to try to, try to get there. I don't, I don't care about that right now. So one thing about European basketball is, especially when you're young, you don't play many minutes. Even some of the brightest Every coach is stars, Doc Rivers. You might see like the top prospects play 10 to 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Even when you're a star player, you rarely play over 30 minutes because the rotation is so heavy. His first three seasons with, with Barca, relatively uneventful. First season, average 10 minutes. Second season, 10 minutes. And then third season, 17 minutes. And he's only shooting under 40% from the field and under 25% from three. Not really making an impact in limited time. But there's still bright future for him. He's still only 20 years old. Not Actually, not even 20 by the time his third season is over. During this time, he uh, began to experience significant team success at the international level. In the summer of 1998, he was a member of the Spanish team that won the Europe Under-18 Championship. And in 1999, he was the star guard on the team that beat the USA in the final of the Under-19 World Cup. So despite, you know, leading Spain and scoring five times and leading them to the championship, Navarro didn't win MVP because that went to uh, Andre Karolenko, who had just become the youngest foreign player drafted in the NBA. And Russia was really bad in this tournament. They finished, I think it was seventh. Or they, they finished sixth. Did they make it to the knockouts at that point? Or did they like not even, what was there a group stage in knockouts? So it went from one group stage to a second quarterfinal group stage, which was two groups of four. The top two go to the semi. So one group was the U.S., Argentina, Russia, and Brazil, and U.S., Argentina advanced. And the other group was Spain, Croatia, Australia, and Greece, and Spain and Croatia advanced. Kirilenko and Russia, they ended up losing to Australia in the fifth place game. But he was just so impressive leading Russia in scoring rebounds and assists that he wins MVP despite being on a sixth place team instead of, you know, someone who won the championship or at least made the semifinals. Pretty wild. That brings us back to what we said about Ben Simmons the other day, where like, don't trust someone that's drafted really highly if they couldn't take their team on a run at like whatever level they were at before. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, I don't know what the Russia under 19 team was at that point, but Kirilenko does eventually get over the hump. He he wins uh, the Euro uh, Euro basket in 2007 when they actually beat Spain in the final in Spain 60 to 59. 
So Kirilenko won that for Russia, Russia's only ever international title in basketball, not counting any Soviet era stuff. And Kirilenko was the MVP for that. But this is not a story about Andre Kirilenko. So we, we can talk about that another time. Back to Juan Carlos Navarro. His play earns him a call-up to the senior Spanish team for the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Here he is at 20 years old on the full Spanish national team. Comes off the bench, averages nine points per game during the Olympics. Pretty good for him. That's pretty much what he's been averaging for Barcelona at this point. And he's starting a bit to come into his own. They're talking about him as a potential NBA draft pick. And fortunately, he has a couple small injuries in his 2001 season that knock him out of first round consideration of the NBA draft. And he is eventually taken 40th overall by the Wizards in the 2002 NBA draft. They offer him a contract. But he says, no, I want to stay home. And this was a great decision for Navarro. Yeah, he went to not play for the Wizards. There's there's never been a time that not playing for the Wizards has not been the correct answer. Could have played with Michael Jordan for one year if he went right away. That's the only... Really? That does kind of actually add a little wrinkle, I guess, if it's the one season where that could have been relevant. Maybe, but in 2002-2003, Navarro shoots uh, up the ladder towards stardom. He was Barca's second leading scorer in the league, averaging 14 points per game, throwing in 11 points per game in the EuroLeague, and Barca rolls. They win the Spanish League, sweeping Valencia in the finals 3-0. They won the Spanish Copa del Rey over uh, Ceramica, and they won their first ever EuroLeague title, beating CSKA in Moscow in the semis, then Treviso of Italy in the championship for their first ever Triple Crown season which is the League, Domestic Cup, and European Cup. I have curiosity, like, how rare is that? So I looked this up earlier. Barcelona has won. 12 European basketball clubs have won it, have had triple crowns. Most recent was Real Madrid in the 2014-2015 season. Okay, awesome. This is a rare and excellent thing for them to have accomplished. Yes, and this is the only one that they have ever had. So this this is a very big thing for them. He continues to improve, and by the end of the 2007 season, he's a true European star. He, he's regularly averaging over 17 points per game in both uh, Liga ACB and the EuroLeague, despite playing max of 30 minutes per game, usually somewhere around 25 to 28. He's won four Liga championships, three Copa del Reyes, the Spanish Super Cup, and the aforementioned EuroLeague. He was all EuroLeague first team twice in 2006-2007, all Spanish League first team in both those seasons as well, and the Spanish League MVP in 2006. Around this time, he earns the nickname La Bamba, thanks to the teardrop floater that he had made his go-to move. Okay, so not like Richie Valens La Bamba, like he's, he is dropping an explosive La Bamba. Yes. This shot is so iconic for him that Steph Curry talks about it as something that, that he's looked at. The floaters, and he liked the, uh, the one-footed threes as well. Uh, Curry said during the 2001 All-Star game that he really tried to implement into his game. So very successful, both at the club level in Spain and on the you know, European uh, competition front. But Spain is really having a golden generation internationally too, thanks to Juan Carlos Navarro and Pau Gasol. Right, yeah, he would line up with the Gasols. Al Gasol is his best friend. They have 
grown up together with the Spanish team, and they are very close. 2001 Eurobasket wins bronze medal. 2003 Eurobasket, silver, while finishing fifth in scoring. 2004 Olympics, unfortunately run into the U.S. in the quarterfinals, but he does score 18 points in that eight-point loss against the U.S. 2005 Eurobasket, where Pau is injured. He averages 25 points per game, finishing second only to Dirk Nowitzki, who averaged 26. These company to keep. Yeah, these international okay. efforts culminated with the 2006 uh, FIBA World Championships, where Spain won the gold medal. They routed Greece in the final 70-47, to 47, with Navarro being the leading scorer with 20 points. And the wild thing about this is they held this Greek team to 47 points. Two days ago, this Greek team put up 101 on a USA team led by Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, LeBron James, and Dwight Howard and beat them. Even then, that's not the best defensive outfit of all time. They were coached by Larry Brown, though, which does help to explain <laughs> it. Well, I mean, look, regardless, no, I am not trying to take it. That's a fucking accomplishment. Yeah, so they, Spain wins the World Championships, and yeah, he's just racking up the trophies at this point. And on August 3rd, 2007, Wizards traded his draft rights to the Memphis Grizzlies for a future first. Uh, sensing that the time is right to move to the USA, and... The fact that he was going to get a chance to reunite with his best friend, Pau Gasol. Navarro secures a 10 million euro buyout with Barca and makes the jump to the NBA. Unfortunately, I was fucking waiting unfortunately. for it. This Memphis team is really, really bad. Like 20 win bad and not just 20 win bad, 20 win bad. And they trade Pau Gasol in February to Los Angeles. So... Navarro averages 10 points off the bench for this team and is named second team all-rookie. He also hit 156 three-pointers, which was too shy of the then-rookie record, but he was not very happy in Memphis. And so shortly after the season, he says, I don't want to spend any more time here, and quickly signs a five-year contract to go back to Barcelona. He was asked later if he regretted leaving the NBA after just one year and said, no, the team was bad. The language was a barrier, and my family, my girls, were not comfortable. If it had fallen on another team, that would have been better. Playoffs? Everything might have been different. But really, could you blame him? This was a dude who had lived his entire life in Barcelona, was a superstar in his home country, moved his family to Memphis, Tennessee to play with his best friend, and then saw his best friend traded to Los Angeles while he was stuck on a 20-win team in Memphis. He had never been on a bad team before in his life. Yeah. He was only ever, like, on Barcelona. It'll fuck you up, man. I would rather be a big fish in a small pond than a big fish lifelessly flopping around the state of Tennessee. There's no water there. There's no pond. <laughs> Fun fact, the Grizzlies, they still liked him, so they accepted him a qualifying offer to retain his NBA rights before... Eventually, they had to rescind it in September 2009 for extra cap space because they wanted to sign a different guard. This guard was a little bit past his peak, had, had done some special moments in, in our area. Diaz, who did the Memphis Grizzlies sign? Well, I've got the answer for you. That's it. It's, it's the answer. It's on I Yes. Nice. <laughs> Pretty good. That, that, took me, that, took me, that took me too long. And the I, the I, response I is the answer. Exactly, exactly. Yes. I, I, I broke Jeopardy rules pretty, pretty severely there, but... It's all right. It, it, it still counts. So 
His, his trip across the ocean did not go well for him. But there's a phrase that Diaz likes to use when someone has had some accomplishments, then has a bit of a downer, but is ready to get back at it. Navarro still had some shit to prove. There it is. I love it. So the first thing Navarro does when he gets out of Memphis is compete for Spain at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And he leads Spain to the gold medal match uh, against the USA, where he scores 18 points in the final, but Spain does fall to the redeem team 118 to 107. That was a great final game. Because you need to put that in context too. That was in 40 minutes that it was 118 to 107. Wow, actually, I want to know if there was any defense. I want to like. There's a lot of defense. Well, but I want to see a rating somehow. That I mean, I guess the rating is just the offensive rating that those two teams put up in that. (laughs) I just want there to be an advanced stat that that shows when teams turn off from just just letting each other shoot fireballs. Right. I mean, my only thing is like that. What makes it more impressive though is that like it's an Olympic gold medal game. This isn't some random Pistons Pelicans game in the middle of February. Like, they're dialed in. Yeah, I mean, this was... This isn't the only time that the USA and Spain come together in in a final, but we'll get to that later. Over the next three seasons, the 08-09, 09-10, and 10-11 seasons, Navarro and Barcelona win two more uh, Liga ACB titles, two more Copa del Reyes, three straight Spanish Super Cups, of which Navarro was the MVP for all three of them, and the 2010 EuroLeague, where they were led by a starting backcourt of Navarro and a young Ricky Rubio. Love I, I'm glad we got some Ricky Rubio crossover. Ooh, once again, man, we're flying with puns. I'll take a so, step back and get back to it. <laughs> that was foul. <laughs> All right. So well. in, the, in the EuroLeague final, Navarro and the young Rubio... They, they route Olympiacos 86-68, with Navarro leading the team in scoring, assists, and rebounds with 28-3-5 respectively, while winning EuroLeague Final Four MVP and EuroLeague Finals top scorer. Navarro was EuroLeague first team for all three of these seasons, all Spanish League first team for 2009-2010, EuroLeague MVP for 2009, and the Mr. Europa European Player of the Year Award in 2010 for Best European Player Anywhere in the World. Incidentally, this was the last time this award was handed out after 35 years. So he's the last ever Mr. Europa. Which is an excellent title for an achievement, and I'm glad that that's one that he'll get to keep forever. So in that year, he's winning over Paul Gasol, even. Yes, yes. Like, people like Dirk and Powell had won won that award while playing in the USA. He was also named to the EuroLeague All-Decades team for 2000-2010. And during this time... Navarro and Spain also win the 2009 Eurobasket over Serbia. So there's another major international gold. And I'm then glad to ca- know that baby Jokic was sad. <laughs> and then caps off this lightning three years of just winning everything with the starring role in Eurobasket 2011 in September 2011, where Spain defends their title with a 98-85 victory over a France team that was led by Tony Parker and Joe Kim Noah. Navarro outduels Parker in the final with 27 points to Parker's 26 and wins the Eurobasket MVP. And this is after he scored 35 points in the semis against Macedonia. 
I mean, that's pretty good. Like, I can fall back on Tony Parker has a finals MVP, but that, that's pretty good. Now, maybe if Navarro came over a little earlier and wasn't in Memphis, he could have... Uh, Dude, if Navarro <laughs> came to the Spurs, it would have been amazing. Him and Manu as the as the two guys coming off the bench, that would have been incredible. And we would have been just the most foreign team of all time. <laughs> uh, so, 2012-2013, slightly down from his peak, but Navarro still makes two EuroLeague second teams, wins another Spanish League, another Copa del Rey, and gets a second consecutive Olympic silver medal in the 2012 Olympics, again losing to the USA. It's hard. They, they won a tournament that had the USA in it twice before. It's hard to do that again. He's got, We're he's pretty got good at Olympic basketball when we like even kind of half put our minds to it. And the fact that he, he has five different international competition gold medals is pretty good. The two Olympic silvers, that's still impressive when it's against the USA both times. So now we're getting to his mid-30s. Navarro starts picking up some nagging injuries in his legs that impact his movement and ability to score. But he's still able to, you know, contribute to another Spanish League Championship, another Copa del Rey, another Spanish Super Cup, and bronze medals for Spain at both the 2016 Rio Olympics and Eurobasket 2017 before retiring in 2018. At the time of his retirement, Navarro was the all-time leader in points scored in the EuroLeague with 4,321. He's still the EuroLeague all-time leader in threes with 623. Yeah, he's 80 above anybody else at this point. That's one of those records that I have to imagine is going to stand for a while because it takes someone who has NBA talent but does not want to play long-term in the NBA. You'd be looking at a native European that loves you know where they live and doesn't want to leave i would imagine it would be hard to like imagine overwhelming it. civic pride yeah yeah so like right. the, the guy who ended up breaking his record for points is uh vasilis spanoulis who is a greek basketball player who has spent his whole 22 year career playing in greece except for one year with the houston rockets so that's pretty much yeah, where, like that's... where it comes from that's the only kind of like career that you could possibly have to foster. So you have to be just good enough to taste it, but you can't gel with it. Basilis also has probably the two coolest nicknames because his anglicized name is Billy. So his nicknames are both Kill Bill and MVP for most Basilis player. I like those both a lot. Basketball reference is lying to us about half <laughs> of these nicknames. We don't watch enough EuroLeague basketball. I've watched plenty of EuroLeague basketball. As as somebody who spent two years of the Sixers process going through, again, we're referring to those illegal websites that James brought up earlier, to watch Dario Saric play for Anadolu FS, and then Furkan Korkmaz after Saric finally came over, I've watched a lot of EuroLeague. There, there are some <laughs> fraudulent nicknames out there. Back to that point, yes. No, there definitely is. So... He's eventually named to his second straight EuroLeague All-Decades team for 2010 to 2020. That's impressive. So he's on both the 2000-2010 Decades team and 2010-2020 Decades team. And he's one of only seven players to have been officially designated as a EuroLeague legend. So wait, they just... What's the criteria for that? Just like... Yeah, hold on. They, they, <laughs> you do one every year or like... He's a legend. So, so the EuroLeague basketball company, which is the organizer of the EuroLeague, have decided that they can officially designate someone as a 
EuroLeague legend. It's the EuroLeague Basketball Legend Award to honor someone for their outstanding playing, coaching, or front office careers in the league. As of right now, there are seven players who are honored. Theo Papalokas, who was honored in 2013. Juan Carlos Navarro, who was the second player honored in 2014. Ramonis Siskowskis, a Lithuanian player, and another Lithuanian, Sarunas Yashukevich, who is Juan Carlos's teammate at Barcelona and also the current manager of Barcelona. Demetrius Diamantidis in 2016, Mursad Churchken, a, a Turkish player in 2017, and then Felipe Reyes is the only per- person who's been honored in the past six years, or the past five years, I should say. So only those seven, then there's one coach and one executive that have been honored. So, so they've, they've done it closer to annually than every other year since they started doing it, but still... it. It's like an Oscar special achievement award. You get it, one every it, couple broadcasts. It was essentially once they started doing it, they decided to give out a couple like in the first couple of years. It was essentially kind of getting almost like a Hall of Fame thing started where you do more at the start than you would afterwards. But still, one of only seven players to be a EuroLeague legend. Once he retires, he immediately moves into the Barcelona front office. Uh, and his number 11 jersey was retired by Barca in March 2019. He's currently the manager of the basketball section of the Barcelona structure, which is not the same thing as the coach of the basketball team. One is more of a front office job working on the, talked about it before, how Barcelona is a club of tens of thousands of members with a whole sporting structure with lots of teams of, like underneath it. So he's yeah. in the front office as a, as a manager. And so that's... What he's currently doing now, I watched the thing where he was trying to lure Marcus All to come play for Barcelona after he was done uh, in the NBA. So the, the the last thing I wanted to bring up was I um I, I came across a a interview with with Memphis Grizzlies like workers and both the Grizzlies TV play by play man Pete Pranica and their radio broadcast man Eric Hasseltine. We're talking about their favorite MSG moments, and both of them on their own said that they had distinct memories of the time when, after they had traded Powell away, they were playing against the Knicks at the end of the 2008 season, and there was nothing to play for. Everything sucked. No one cared about anything. But a whole bunch of Spanish exchange students who were going to colleges in New York City showed up at the Knicks game to cheer for Juan Carlos Navarro. They were following the team bus around, and going nuts every time he did anything. And he scored 17 points in the garden, and these fans just went crazy. And it was one little bright spot in a really shitty year for Memphis. And these guys still remembered it 13 years later. That helps make a lot more sense as to why he was eventually like, yo, I need to go back to Spain. (laughs) Got that taste of home and said, you know what's better than the squeeze? The whole lemon. (laughs) <laughs> Remember when the highlight of this season was when I was somewhere being chanted by a bunch of people from my nation? And just think about how many titles he won with both Spain and Barcelona in the three years after he did that. He won pretty much everything. But um, that's my guy, Juan Carlos Navarro. You know, weird cup of coffee in the NBA. Didn't stay as long as some of his compatriots. But man, is he loved in Spain. Excellent story. I I really wish he had gotten that rookie record for threes at the time, which I imagine has been broken by someone else since then. But it would have been great for 
a one-and-done NBA <laughs> player to hold a rookie record for a while. Just excellent bar trivia. Got in, did... set some records, got out, went back to Spain, was beloved, set more records. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's technically still in the top 10. Yeah, I think, I think he's still in the top 10. I think Donovan Mitchell has the record now. Oh, well, then I don't care about that record. He plays for an irrelevant franchise, as we've discussed. <laughs> Speaking of discussions, we have come to the point where we have to have one about which one of these three guys is going to get inducted today. This is a good first batch. We always come firing after a break, come out hot. And there's, there's a lot that I liked about Juan Carlos. I liked in particular in Juan Carlos is just if we, we say sometimes we're trying to pick to best fit the theme. You had a lot of guys in there, like like Kirilenko in particular. Just, ooh, would love to would love to think about that guy for a moment. Also, would love to have that tangent. And and the same with Bednarik. The whole Bednarik was so mad about a hundred books that he rooted for the Patriots against the Eagles in a Super Bowl is a massive knock against him. Like the playing career of John Bednarik. <laughs> It's a, I think that's a pro as his pettiness. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like if, if we're going to the bar fodder standard again, that's something you bring up. And like, did you know that Chuck wanted the Eagles to lose in that Super Bowl because they didn't buy a hundred books of his? You know, that's I could turn sim- that right that's back. That's too around. similar to his teammate, who you know you got the Bednarik story out of, where Bucko Kilroy was twenty-year Eagle and then forty-year Patriot. At the end, he was rooting for the Patriots. And I want to I wanna just say, Diaz, what an excellent example this is of the good that a single championship can do to someone. Because I bet if we went back a few years, I was like, hey, remember when this Eagles legend, the last time you were in the Super Bowl, wanted the other team to win, and they did? Probably feel a little bit differently. I would. I would feel differently. That's totally fair to say. But, again, Concrete Charlie. He's a petty man. Charlie's great. You don't want to buy his concrete? Fuck you. You're getting your tires <laughs> slashed. You don't want to buy his books? Fuck you. I'm rooting for the other team in the Super Bowl. Concrete Charlie is great. I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll say it. I like Luberdet here, and I want to... Luberdet, who, by the way, the stylization of his name... Now, Lewis is spelled L-E-W-I-S. There's no doubt about that. And so, typically, you will find it spelled L-E-W. You will sometimes see baseball cards that say L-O-U... He also almost always spelled it L-O-U. I have no idea, first off, why he decided to start doing that, but why, if he was doing that, that wasn't what everybody did. Just another weird thing about Luberdet. And that's, th- th- I mean, that's kind of my pitch for Luberdet. There's, there, I, I think Luberdet had the best density of dumb, weird things. He scored the only run in his no-hitter. Just so many, like, dumb little Luberdet facts. But he hurt both the Yankees and the Phillies. Two equally prestigious franchises <laughs> on opposite sides of the reason. Somebody's got to win a lot of games, and somebody has to lose a lot of games. He, he did also play for the Phillies, and you went and beat him immediately the next year. In the middle of a period where you made the World Series nine times in ten years when we came up to 1957, which means ten times in 11 years in 1958. I think... Your whole Yankees victimhood here, Xavier, <clears throat> is not going to play. Well, we could have had 28 World Series instead of 27. <laughs> yes, how do you not want to vote for Luberdet just to spite Xavier right now? I do appreciate your appeal to my spitefulness, which is profound. <laughs> so, 
it isn't even just because of the spite. I do lean Lou because where I come down again is that I think Chuck is almost in the 2G, 2G category, which is too good to guy. I think he might be too good. And then I would say the same thing on the flip side of Juan Carlos. This is a man that made two separate all-decade teams in Europe, which is pretty incredible. Well, let me tell you something. Lou Burdett, perfectly average. Just average for a long time. But important, and he, uh, he stepped up when he needed to, though. So in the World Series, yeah. probably the best stretch of three consecutive started games in his career comes right there in the World Series. Going against a man that pitched 11 for Haddocks before he blew it in the 12th? Perfect well, innings. 12 times Harvey Haddocks retired batters in perfect order until that 13th inning. He allowed 12 hits, and he won. Just a man, a guy, excuse me, that knows when he can get away with some shit, and he knows when it's time to buckle down. I, I really appreciate that characteristic about Lou, so I do lean towards L-O-U Burdett. See, I, I'm fine with Lou Burdett, but just for future reconsideration's sake, I just want to say that Juan Carlos Navarro may be a, too good to be a guy in Spain. In America, I think he, he fits... Pretty well in guy territory. circumstances. Similar I, to, you know, our previous discussions that included people like Alfredo Di Stefano, who is a god in both Spain and Argentina. But a guy, really, here. In, when we talk about this again in, in 10 weeks, I just want that to be noted in the record. Too, too good to be an hombre, but good enough to be a guy. No un hombre, pero quizás un guy. No, no es, es posible que es un guy. Posible un chico. No, no sabemos, no sabemos. But back to English and back to the point. It does sound like we have two votes for Lou. And we have at least Do you want to make it three? Acceptance. Like his three yeah. complete games? Again, to put that three complete games, just one last thing in context. One other person in 1920 up until that point had had three complete games. And that's because in 1920, it was a best of nine series. Luberdet, just an absolutely mediocre pitcher, went and did the unthinkable. I think it's got to be Lou. So, without any further ado, it is our great honor, our great privilege to kick off this third season of Remember That Guy for the man that had three complete games in the World Series and managed to be the winning pitcher in the game against the greatest game pitched of all time. Extraordinarily petty man. He doesn't need to make a phone call to Harvey this time because we're making the call to him. Luberdet, welcome to the Hall of Guy. Welcome indeed. How appropriate that Harvey Haddix misses on his episode, does not get reconsidered, and then Luberdet just waltzes right on in. Honestly, it's, it's the most fitting thing we could have possibly done. It's just too poetic. And Harvey, we're very sorry. You, got, uh, you should have spread out your appearances more. <laughs> That's all I've got for you guys this week. There's a lot of good sports to watch. The Orioles are not among them. Listen, go, go Cedric Mullins. Eventually, you're going to get Adley back. That'll be big. I'm going to be completely honest here. I'm so broken by this franchise. I'm convinced this tricep strain is going to keep Adley from ever reaching the majors. I'm convinced this is where the shoe finally drops. I understand. And let me just put this back in another perspective for you. Joel Embiid broke his foot for the second time. I thought he was never going to make it back either. So just, just, just keep the faith. Keep the faith. That's all I say. 
it will be worth it when you get to see your beautiful Cameroonian boy. I'm sorry, Adley's not Cameroonian. Uh, when you get to see Adley... He's very not Cameroonian. Nonetheless, will, you will see your beautiful boy in that Orioles orange eventually. It will also be worth it when the Eagles draft Matt Ariza in the fourth round, like they did in Dane Brugler's seven-round mock draft that was just released. I don't think that would be a reach in the slightest. No, in the fourth round, because, I mean, by the fourth round, you're talking, like, I'm not saying it's quite crapshoot range, but Matt Arise is not a crapshoot. It's you know take you're players gonna... that you like at that point right. range. Right. And I like guaranteeing that for the next decade, I don't have to worry about my punter position. So I think that would be a wonderful pickup for the Eagles. Well, anything else for us to look forward to currently, guys? Nothing uh, for me. The, the, I would say the playoffs will have already started by then. Let me allow myself to sound like an idiot to people that are going to listen to this on Monday when this definitely isn't what happens. The Clippers are going to win by at least 20 against the Pelicans. I think that's not even going to be a close game in L.A. And I think the Cavs are actually going to beat the Hawks. The Hawks are favored, even though they're going into Cleveland, but I like the Cavs. So give me Cavs in a close one. Give me Clippers in a blowout. And as you listen to this on Monday, you will appreciate just how stupid those words I said are. (laughs) And as you think about the very stupid things that Diaz said, I'll just say that I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I am Diaz. And as Chuck Bednarik once said after laying out Frank Gifford, this fucking guy is over. (laughs) So fucking (laughs) 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 (laughs)